Chapter One of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Chapter One. Salamis, B.C. 480. The world has lost all record of the greatest of its inventors. The pioneers, who in far-off ages devised the simple appliances with which men till the ground, did their domestic work, and fought their battles for thousands of years. He who hung up the first weaver's beam and shaped the first rude shuttle was a more wonderful inventor than Arkwright. The maker of the first bow and arrow was a more enterprising pioneer than our inventors of machine-guns and greater than the builders of dreadnoughts were those who, with hearts girded round with oak and triple brass, were the first to trust their frail barks to the cruel sea. No doubt the hollowed tree-trunk and the coracle of oceans and skins had long before this made their trial trips on rivers and lakes. Then came the first ventures in the shallow sea-margins, and, at last, a primitive naval architect built up plank bulwarks round his hollowed tree-trunk, and stiffened them with ribs of bent branches, and the first ship was launched. This evolution of the ship must have been in progress independently in more places than one. We're most concerned here with its development in that eastern end of the landlocked Mediterranean, which is the meeting place of so many races, and around which so much of what is most momentous in the world's history has happened. There seems good reason for believing that among the pioneers in early naval construction were the men of that marvelous people of old Egypt, to whom the world's civilization owes so much. They had doubtless learned their work on their own Nile before they pushed out by the channels of the delta to the waters of the great sea. They had invented the sail, though it was centuries before anyone learned to do more than scud before the wind. It took long experience of the sea to discover that one could fix one's sail at an oblique angle with the midline of the ship, to lay a course with the wind on the quarter or even a beam and not dead astern. But there was as important an invention as the sail, that of the oar. We are so familiar with it that we do not realize all it means. Yet it is a notable fact that whole races of men who navigate river, lake, and sea, successfully and boldly, never hit upon the principle of the oar till they were taught it by Europeans, and could of themselves get no further than the paddle. The oar, with its leverage, its capacity for making the very weight of the crew become a motive power, became, in more senses than one, the great instrument of progress on the sea. It gave the ship a power of maneuvering independently of the wind, the same power that is the essence of advantage in steam propulsion. The centuries during which the sailing ship was the chief reliance of navigation and commerce were, after all, an episode between the long ages when the oar-driven galley was the typical ship and the present age of steam beginning less than a hundred years ago. Sails were an occasional help to the early navigator. Our songs of the sea call them the white wings of the ship. For the Greek poet Aeschylus, the wings of the ship were the long oars. The trader, creeping along the coast, or working from island to island, helping himself when the wind served with the sail, and having only a small crew, could not afford much oar power, though he had often to trust it. But for the fighting ship, oar power and speed were as important as mechanical horsepower is for the warships of the twentieth century. 
So the war galley was built longer than the trader, to make room for as many oars as possible on either side. In the Mediterranean in those early days, as with the Vikings of later centuries, the long ship meant the ship of war. It is strange to reflect that all through human history, war has been a greater incentive to shipbuilding progress than peaceful commerce. For those early navigators, the prizes to be won by fighting and raiding were greater than any that the more prosaic paths of trade could offer. The fleets that issued from the delta of the Nile were piratical squadrons that were the terrors of the Mediterranean coasts. The Greek, too, like the Norseman, began his career on the sea with piracy. The Athenian historian tells of days when it was no offense to ask a seafaring man, Are you a pirate, sir? The first admirals of the eastern Mediterranean had undoubtedly more likeness to Captain Kidd and Blackbeard than to Nelson and Collingwood. Later came the time when organized governments in the Greek cities and on the Phoenician coast kept fleets on the landlocked sea to deal with piracy and protect peaceful commerce. But the prizes that allured the corsair were so tempting that piracy revived again and again. And even in the late days of the Roman Republic, the consul Pompey had to conduct a maritime war on a large scale to clear the sea of the pirates. Of the early naval wars of the Mediterranean, battles of more or less piratical fleets, or of the war galleys of coast and island states, we have no clear record, or no vestige of a record. Egyptians, Phoenicians, Cretans, men of the rich island state of which we have only recently found the remains in buried palaces, Greeks of the Asiatic mainland and their eastern neighbors, Greeks of the islands and the peninsula, Illyrians of the labyrinth of Creek and island that fringes the Adriatic, Sicilians and Carthaginians all had their adventures and battles on the sea in the dim beginnings of history. Homer has his catalogue of ships set forth in stately verse, telling how the Greek chieftains led 120,000 warriors embarked on 1,100 galleys to the siege of Troy. But no hostile fleet meant them, if, indeed, the great armament ever sailed, as to which historians and critics dispute. One must pass on for centuries after Homer's day to find reliable and detailed records of early naval war. The first great battle on the sea, of which we can tell the story, was the fight in the Straits of Salamis, when Greek and Persian strove for the mastery of the Near East. King Darius had found that his hold on the Greek cities of Asia Minor was insecure so long as they could look for armed help to their kindred beyond the archipelago, and he had sent his satraps to raid the Greek mainland. That first invasion ended disastrously at Marathon. His son Xerxes took up the quarrel, and devoted years to the preparation not of a raid upon Europe, but of an invasion in which the whole power of his vast empire was to be put forth by sea and land. It was fortunate for Greece that the man who then counted for most in the politics of Athens was one who recognized the all-importance of sea power, though it is likely that at the outset all he had in mind was that the possession of an efficient fleet would enable his city to exert its influence on the islands and among the coast cities, to the exclusion of the military power of its rival, Sparta. When it was proposed that the product of the silver mines of Lorium should be distributed among the Athenian citizens, it was Themistocles who persuaded his fellow countrymen that a better investment for the public wealth would be found in the building and equipment of a fleet. He used as one of his arguments the probability that the Persian king would, sooner or later, try to avenge the defeat of Marathon. 
A no less effective argument was the necessity of protecting their growing commerce. Athens looked upon the sea, and that sea at once divided and united the scattered Greek communities who lived on the coasts and islands of the archipelago. It was the possession of the fleet thus acquired that enabled Themocles and Athens to play a decisive part in the crisis of the struggle with Asia. It was in the spring of B.C. 480 that the march from Asia Minor began. The vast multitude gathered from every land in western Asia, from the shores of the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf, and the wild mountain plateaus of the Indian border, was too numerous to be transported in any fleet that even the great king could assemble. For seven days and nights it poured across the floating bridge that swayed with the current of the Dardanelles, a bridge that was a wonder of early military engineering, and the making of which would tax the resources of the best army of today. It then marched by the coastline through what is now Rumelia and Thessaly. It ate up the supplies of the lands through which it passed. If it was to escape famine, it must keep in touch with the ships that crossed and recrossed the narrow seas, bringing heavy cargoes of food and forage from the ports of Asia, and escorted by squadrons of long war galleys. Every Greek city had been warned of the impending danger. Even those who remembered Marathon, the day when a few thousand spearmen had routed an Asiatic horde outnumbering them tenfold, realized that any force that now could be put in the field would be overwhelmed by this human tide of a million fighting men. But there was one soldier statesman who saw the way to safety, and grasped the central fact of the situation. This was Themocles the Athenian, the chief man of that city, against which the first fury of the attack would be directed. No doubt it was he who inspired the prophetess of Delphi with her mysterious message that the Athenians must make for themselves wooden walls, and he supplied the explanation of the enigma. The Persian must be meant not on the land, but in wooden walls, upon the sea. Victory upon that element would mean the destruction of the huge army on land. The greater its numbers, the more helpless it would be in its position. It could not live upon the country. There must be a continual stream of seaborne supplies arriving from Asia, and this would be interrupted and cease altogether once the Greeks were masters of the sea. The Athens of the time was not the wonderful city that arose in later years, embellished by the masterpieces of some of the greatest architects and artists the world has ever known. The houses huddled round the foot of the Citadel Hill, the Acropolis, which was crowned with rudely built primitive temples. But the people whose home it was were startled by the proposal of Themistocles that their city should be abandoned to the enemy without one blow struck in its defense. Not Athens only, but every village and farm in the surrounding country was to be deserted. Men, women, and children, horses and cattle, were all to be conveyed across the narrow strait to the island of Salamis, which was to be the temporary refuge of the citizens of Athens and of the country folk of Attica. Would they ever return to their ruined homes and devastated lands, where they would find houses burned and vines and olives cut down? Could they even hope to maintain themselves in Salamis? Would it not be better to fight in defense of their homes, even against desperate odds, and meet their fate at once, instead of only deferring the evil day? It was no easy task for the man of the moment to persuade his fellow countrymen to adopt his own far-sighted plans. Even when most of them had accepted his leadership and were obeying his orders, a handful of desperate men refused to go. 
they took refuge on the hill of the Acropolis, and, acting upon the literal meaning of the oracle, toiled with axe and hammer, building up wooden barriers before the gates of the old citadel. Everywhere else the city and the country round were soon deserted. The people streamed down to the ocean, and were ferried over to Salamis, where huts of straw and branches rose up in wide extended camps, to shelter the crowds that could find no place in the island villages. In every wood on either shore trees were being felled. In every creek shipwrights were busy night and day building new ships, or refitting old. To every Greek seaport messages had been sent, begging them to send to the Straits of Salamis as many ships, oarsmen, and fighting men as they could muster. Slowly the Persian army moved southward through Thessaly. A handful of Spartans, under Leonidas, had been sent forward to delay the Persian advance, to hold the pass of Thermopylae between the eastern shoulder of Mount Etna and the sea. It was a hopeless position. To fight there at all with such an insignificant force was a mistake. But the government of Sparta, slaves to tradition, could not grasp the idea of the plans proposed by the great Athenian. They were half persuaded to recall Leonidas, but hesitated to act until it was too late. The Spartan chief and his few hundred warriors died at their post in self-sacrificing obedience to the letter of their orders. The Persians poured over the pass and inundated the plains of Attica. The few Athenians who had persisted in defending the Acropolis of Athens made only a brief resistance against overwhelming numbers. They were all put to the sword, and their fellow countrymen in the island of Salamis saw, far off, the pall of smoke that hung in the air over their city where temples and houses alike were sacked and set on fire by the victors. The winds and waves had already been fighting for the Greeks. The Persian war fleet of twelve hundred great ships had coasted southwards by the shores of Thessaly, till they neared the group of islands off the northern point of Euboea. Their scouts reported a Greek fleet to be lying in the channel between the large island and the mainland. Night was coming on, and the Persians anchored in eight long rows off Cape Sepius. As the sun rose, there came one of those sudden gales from the eastward that are still the terror of small craft in the archipelago. The modern sailor would try to beat out to seaward and get as far as possible from the dangerous shore. But these old-world seamen dreaded the open sea. They tried to ride out the gale, but anchors dragged and hundreds of ships were piled in shattered masses on the shore. Some were stranded in positions where they could be repaired and refloated as the weather cleared up. But by the evening of the third day, when at last the wind fell, only eight hundred galleys of the Persian armada were still in seaworthy fighting condition. Here, as on other occasions, the very numbers of the Persian fleet proved a source of danger to it. The harbors that could give shelter to this multitude of ships were very few and far between. Nor was it an easy matter to find that other refuge of the ancient navigator, a beach of easy slope and sufficiently wide extent to enable the ships to be dragged out of the water, and placed high and dry beyond the reach of the angriest waves. The fact that the ships were beached and hauled up on the shore during bad weather and in winter limited their size, and in both the Persian and the Greek fleets there was probably not a ship much larger than the barges we see on our canals, or as big as some of the largest seagoing barges. The typical warship of the period of the Persian War was probably not more than eighty or a hundred feet long, narrow and nearly flat-bottomed. At the bow and stern there was a strongly built deck. Between this poop and forecastle a lighter deck ran fore and aft, and under this were the stations of the rowers. 
The bow was strengthened with plates of iron or brass and beams of oak to enable it to be used as a ram, and the stem rose above the deck level and was carved into the head of some bird or beast. There was a light mast which could be rigged up when the wind served and carried a cross-yard and a square sail. Mast and yard were taken down before going into action. The Greeks called their war galleys triers, the Romans triremes, and the names are generally explained as meaning that the ships were propelled by three banks or rows of oars placed one above the other on either side. The widely accepted theory of how they worked is that the seats of the rowers were placed not directly above each other, but that those who worked the lowest and shortest oars were close to the sides of the ship, the men for the middle range of oars a little above them and further inboard, and the upper tier of rowers still higher and near the center line of the ship. An endless amount of erudition and research has been expended on this question, but most of those who have dealt with it have been classical scholars, possessing little or no practical acquaintance with seafaring conditions, and none of their proposed arrangements of the three banks of oars looks at all likely to be workable and effective. A practical test of the theory was made by Napoleon III when his history of Julius Caesar was being prepared. He had a trireme constructed and tried upon the Seine. There were three banks of oars, but, though the fitting and arrangement was changed again and again under the joint advice of classical experts and practical seamen, no satisfactory method of working the superposed banks of oars could be devised. The probability is that no such method of working was ever generally employed, and that the belief in the existence of old-world navies made up of ships with tier-on-tier -tier of oars on either side is the outcome of a misunderstanding as to the meaning of a word. Trirem seems at first glance to mean triple oared, in the sense of the oars being triplicated. But there are strong arguments for the view that it was not the oars, but the oarmen who were arranged in threes. If this view is correct, the ancient warship was a galley with a single row of long oars on either side, and three men pulling together with each heavy oar. We know that in old navies of the Papal States, and the Republics of Vienna and Genoa, in the Middle Ages, and the days of the Renaissance, and in the royal galleys of the old French monarchy, there were no ships with superimposed banks of oars, but there were galleys known as triremes, quadriremes, and pentaremes, driven by long oars each worked by three, four, or five rowers. It is at least very likely that this was the method adopted in the warships of still earlier times. A trireme of the early days of the Persian War, with fifty or sixty oars, would thus have a crew of one hundred fifty or one hundred eighty rowers. Add to this some fifty or sixty fighting men, and we have a total crew of over two hundred. In the Persian navies the rowers were mostly slaves, like the galley slaves of later times. They were chained to their oars and kept in order or roused to exertion by the whip of their taskmasters. To train them to work together effectively required a long apprenticeship, and in rough water their work was especially difficult. To miss the regular time of the stroke was dangerous, for the long oars projecting far inboard would knock down and injure the nearest rowers unless all swung accurately together. The flat-bottomed galleys rolled badly in a heavy sea, and in rough weather rowing was fatiguing and even perilous work. Some two hundred men in a small ship meant crowded quarters, and lack of room everywhere except on the fighting deck. But as the fleets hugged the shore and generally lay up for the night, the crews could mostly land to cook, eat, and sleep. In the Persian ships belonging to many nations, 
and some of them to the Greek citizens of Asia, Xerxes took the precaution of having at least thirty picked Persian warriors in each crew. Their presence was intended to secure the fidelity of the rest. In the Greek fleet the rowers were partly slaves, partly freemen impressed or hired for the work. Then there were a few seamen, fishermen, or men who, in the days of peace, manned the local coasting craft. The chief of this navigating party were the Calustes, who presided over the rowers and gave the signal for each stroke, and the pilot, who was supposed to have a knowledge of the local waters and of wind and weather, and who acted as steerman, handling alone, or with the help of his assistants, the long stern oar that served as a rudder. The fighting men were not sailors, but soldiers embarked to fight afloat, and their military chief commanded the ship with the help of the pilot. For more than two thousand years this division between the sailor and the fighting element in navies continued throughout the world. The fighting commander and the sailing master were two different men, and the captain of a man-of-war was often a landsman. In the Greek fleet, which lay sheltered in the narrows behind the long island of Euboea, while the Persians were battling with the tempest off Cape Sepius, the admiral was the Spartan Eurybiades, a veteran general who knew more about forming a phalanx of spearmen than directing the movements of a fleet. The military reputation of his race had secured for him the chief command, though the whole fleet of between three and four hundred triremes, less than a third had been provided by Sparta and her allies, and half of the armada was formed of the well-equipped Athenian fleet, commanded by Themistocles in person. As the storm abated, the fleets faced each other in the strait north of Euboea. In the Persian armada, the best ships were five long galleys, commanded by an Amazon queen, Artemisia of Halicarnassus, a Greek fighting against Greeks. She scored the first success, swooping down with her squadron on a Greek galley that had ventured to scout along the Persian front in the gray of the morning. Attacked by the five, the ship was taken, and the victors celebrated their success by hanging the commander over the prow of his ship, cutting his throat, and letting his blood flow into the sea, an offering to the gods of the deep. The cruel deed was something that inspired no less sense of horror in those days of heathen war. It was probably not on account of this piece of barbarity, but out of their anger at being opposed by a woman, and a Greek woman, that the allied leaders of Greece set a price on the head of the Amazon queen. But no one ever succeeded in qualifying to claim it. The Persians, hoping to gain advantage from their superior numbers, now detached a squadron which was to coast along the eastern shores of Euboea, enter the strait at its southern end, and fall on the rear of the Greeks, while the main body attacked them in front. Eurybiades and Themistocles had early intelligence of this movement, but were not alarmed by it. Shortly before sunset the Greeks bore down upon the Persians, attacked them in the narrow waters where their numbers could not tell, sank some thirty ships by ramming them, and then drew off as the night came on. It was a wild night. The Greeks had hardly regained their sheltered anchorage when the wind rose. Lightning played around the mountain crests on either hand. The thunder rolled and the rain came down in torrents. The main Persian fleet, in a less sheltered position, found it difficult to avoid disaster, and the crews were horrified at seeing, as the lightning lit up the seas, masses of debris and swollen corpse of drowned men drifting amongst them as the currents brought the wreckage of the earlier storm floating down from beyond Cape Sepius. The hundred ships detached around the southern point of Euboea were still slowly making their way along its rocky eastern coast. 
Caught in the midnight storm, most of them drove ashore and were dashed to pieces. In the morning the sea was still rough, but the Greeks came out of the strait, and without committing themselves to general action, fell upon the nearest ships, the squadron of Cilicia, and sank and captured several of them, retiring when the main fleet began to close upon them. On the third day the sea was calm, and the Persians tried to force the narrows by a frontal attack. There was some hard fighting and loss on both sides, but the Greeks held their own. As the sun set, the Persians rode back towards their anchorage inside Cape Sepius. When the sun rose again, the Greek fleet had disappeared. Eurybiades and Themistocles had agreed in the night after the battle that the time was come to abandon the defense of the Euboean Strait and retire to the waters of Salamis. The Persian army was now flooding the mainland with its myriads of fighting men, and was master of Attica. A fleet, depending so much on the land for supplies and for rest for its crews, could not maintain itself in the straits when the Persians held the mainland and were in a position to seize also the island of Euboea. Before sunrise the Greek ships were working their way in long procession through the Strait of Negropont. Early in the day they began to pass, one by one, the narrows at Chalice, now spanned by a bridge. Then the strait widened, and there were none to bar their way to the open sea, and round Cape Sunium to their sheltered station in the straits behind the island of Salamis. They had been reinforced on the way, and they now numbered three hundred and sixty-six fighting ships. Those of Sparta and the Peloponnesus were eighty-nine, the Athenian fleet one hundred and eighty, while ninety-seven more were supplied by the Greek islands some of the ships from Melos and the Cyclades being pentacounters, large vessels whose long oars were manned by five rowers. Losses by storm and battle had reduced the Persian armada to some six hundred effective ships. The odds were serious, but not desperate. But while the Persian fleet was directed by a single will, there were divided counsel among the Greeks. Eurybiades had most of the leaders on his side when he argued that Athens was hopelessly lost, and the best hope for Greece was to defend the Peloponnesus by holding the Isthmus of Corinth, with what land forces could be assembled, and removing the fleet to the waters of the neighboring waters to cooperate in the defense. Themistocles, on the other hand, shrank from the idea of abandoning the refugees in the island of Salamis, and he regarded the adjacent straits as the best position in which the Greeks could give battle. There, as in the channel of Euboea, the narrow waters would do something to nullify the Persian advantage of numbers, for the Greeks, formed in several lines extending from shore to shore, could only be attacked by equal numbers. Only the leading ships of the attack would be in action at any given moment, and it would not matter how many hundred ships were crowded behind them. With a column of spearmen on land, the weight of the rearward ranks, formed in a serried phalanx, would force onward those in front. But with a column of ships formed in several successive lines and narrow waters, any attempt of the rearward ships to press forward would mean confusion and disaster to themselves and those that formed the leading lines. This would have been true even of ships under sail, but in battle the war galleys were oar-driven, and as the ships jammed together there would be entangled oars, and rowers flung from their benches with broken heads and arms. Better discipline, more thorough fighting power on the Greek side, would mean that the leading ships of their fleet would deal effectually with their nearest adversaries, while the rearward ships would rest upon their oars and plunge into the melee only when disaster to a leading ship left an opening. A doubtful story says that Themistocles, 
foreseeing that if the battle were long delayed the Spartan party would carry their point and withdraw to the isthmus, ran the risk of sending a message to King Xerxes, urging him to attack at once, hinting at a deflection of the Athenian fleet, and telling him that if he acted without delay the Greeks were at his mercy, and that they were so terrified that they were thinking chiefly of how they might escape. Herodotus tells of a council of war of the Persian leaders, at which the fighting queen of Artemisia stood alone in advising delay. She told the king that in overrunning northern Greece he had done enough for one campaign. Let him settle down for winter quarters in Attica, and he would see the Greek armament, already divided by jealousies and quarrels, break up and disperse. He could then prepare quietly for the conquest of the Peloponnesus in the spring. But Xerxes was far more flattered by the opinion of the satraps, who told him he had only to stretch out his hands to destroy the Greek fleet and make himself undisputed master of the sea. And just as Themistocles was despairing of being able to keep the fleet at Salamis, news came that the Persians had decided to attack. The news was brought by Aristides, the son of Lysimachus, who had been unjustly exiled from Athens some years before, but, now in a moment of his country's danger, ran the blockade of the Persians in a ship of Aegea, and came to throw his lot in with his fellow-citizens. For the Greeks to set out for the isthmus under these conditions would be to risk having to meet superior numbers in the open sea. All now agreed that the fate of Greece was to be decided in the waters of Salamis. Xerxes looked forward to the coming struggle with assured hope of victory, and prepared to enjoy the spectacle of the disaster that was about to fall upon his enemies. On the green slope of Mount Agalios, which commanded a full view of Salamis and the Straits, the silken tents of the king and his court were erected, a camp that was like a palace. Purple-dyed hangings, gilted tent poles with pomegranates of pure gold at the top of each, carpets bright with color, carved furniture inlaid with ivory, all made up a display of luxurious pomp. Before the royal tents a golden throne had been erected. Fan-bearers took their post on neither side. Nobles who held the office of sword-bearers and cup-bearers waited at the steps of the throne. On either side, and on the slope below, the ranks of the immortal guard were formed, ten thousand veterans with armor and equipments gleaming with silver and gold. Along the shore from the white marble cliffs of Sunium, by the port of Phalerum, and far up the winding coastline of the Straits, hundreds of thousands more of this army of many nations stood in battle array. They were to witness the destruction of the great king's enemies, and to take an active part in it when, as all expected, disabled Greek galleys would be driven ashore, and their crews would ask in vain for quarter. They were to share, too, in the eruption into Salamis, once the fleet was master of the Straits, and when the people of Athens, no longer protected by the sea, would be at the mercy of the Asiatic warriors. Amid the blare of trumpets the king took his seat upon the throne, and watched his great armada sweeping towards the straits like a floating city. In those hundreds of long, low-sided ships, thousands of slaves strained at the banks of heavy oars, encouraged by the shouts of the picked warriors who crowded the decks, and, if their energies flagged, stimulated to new exertions by the whip of their taskmasters. From every point of vantage in Salamis, women, old men, children, all who could not fight, looked out upon the sea, watching with heart-rending anxiety the signs of the approaching struggle. Death or slavery and untold misery would be their fate if numbers should prevail in the battle. 
In our days, in the hours before such a decisive struggle, a people watches the newspaper and waits for tidings of the fight in a turmoil of mingled hopes and fears. But whatever may be the result, the individual who is thus a spectator at a distance runs no personal risks. It was otherwise in those days of merciless heathen warfare, and here all would see for themselves the changing fortunes of the fight on which their own fate depended. The Greek fleet had been formed into two divisions of unequal strength. The smaller anchored in the western opening of the straits, furthest from the advance of the enemy's armada, and was detailed to prevent any attack through the narrows on the Greek rear. The main body, three hundred strong, was moored in successive lines just inside the opening of the straits to the eastward. The best ships, the most trusted leaders, the picked warriors were in the foremost line. On them the result of the day would chiefly depend, and here the man who had planned it all commanded an Athenian war galley in the center of the array. In this fact we see another striking difference between past and present, the modern specialization of offices and capacities which divides between different individuals the function of political leader, general, and admiral, was yet centuries distant in the future. Themistocles, who advised the policy of naval war, was to be the foremost leader in the battle, and, though purely naval tactics were to have some part in it, it was to a great extent a land battle fought out on floating platforms, so that one who had learned the art of war on land could act as an admiral on the sea. Sixty thousand men, rowers, and warriors were crowded on board the Greek fleet. At least twice as many must have been borne on the decks and rowers' benches of the Persian armada. Midway in the opening of the straits, the Persians had occupied the rocky island of Cytalia. Its ledges and its summit glittered with the arms, and beside it some light craft had taken post to assist friendly vessels in distress. Past the islet the great fleet swept in four successive divisions driven by the measured stroke of tens of thousands of oars. On the left of the leading line was the Phoenician fleet, led by the tributary kings of Tyre and Sidon, a formidable squadron, for these war-galleys were manned by real seamen, bold sailors who knew not only the ways of the landlocked Mediterranean, but had ventured into the outer ocean. On the right were the ships of the Greek cities of Ionia, the long galleys of Ephesus, Miletus, Samos, and Samothrace. Here Greek would meet Greek in deadly strife. The rowers shouted as they bent to the long oars. The warriors grouped in the prow with spear and javelin in hand, sang the war-songs of many nations. Along the bulwarks of the ships of Asia crouched the Persian and Babylonian archers, the best bowmen of the ancient world, with the arrow resting ready on the string. As the left of the leading line reached the opening of the strait, the rowers reduced their speed, while on the other flank the stroke became more rapid. The long line was wheeling round the point of Salamis, and came in full sight of the Greek fleet, ranged in battle array across the narrows. The Athenian ships formed the right and center of its leading line. The fleet of the Peloponnesus, under the veteran Euripides, was on the left. The rowers were resting on their oars, or just using them enough to keep the ships in position. As the Persians came sweeping into the straits, the Greeks began to chant the paean, their battle hymn. The crash of the encounter between the two navies was now imminent. For a few moments it seemed that already the Persians were assured of victory, for, seeing the enormous mass of the ships of Asia crowding the strait from shore to shore, and stretching far away on the open sea outside it, not a few of the European leaders lost heart for a while. 
the rowers began to backwater, and many of the ships of the first line retired stern foremost into the narrows. The rest followed their example, each one fearing to lose his place in the line and be exposed in isolation to attack of a crowd of enemies. It was perilously like the beginning of a panic that would soon end in disaster if it were not checked, but it was over soon. The last of the retiring Greek ships was a galley of Pellene in Macedonia, commanded by a good soldier, Arminius. He was one of those who was doing his best to check the panic. Resolved that whoever else gave way he would sink rather than take to flight, he turned the prow of his tyrum against the approaching enemy, and, invading the ram of a Persian ship, ran alongside of her. The intermingled oars broke like matchwood, and the two ships grappled. The battle had begun. Attacked on the other side by another of the ships of Asia, Arminius was in deadly peril. The sight of their comrades' courage and of his danger stopped the retirement of the Greeks. Their rowers were now straining every nerve to come to the rescue of the isolated Tyrum, and from shore to shore the two fleets met with a loud outcry and the jarring crash of scores of voluntary or involuntary collisions. All order was soon lost. The Strait of Salamis was now the scene of a vast melee, hundreds of ships crowding together in the narrow pass between the island and the mainland. Themistocles, in the center, with the picked ships of Athens, was forcing his way, wedge-like, between the Phoenician and Ionian squadrons, into the dense mass of the Persian center. The bronze beaks ground their way into hostile timbers, oars were swept away, rowers thrown in confusion from their benches, stunned and with broken limbs. Ships sank and drowning men struggled for life. The Asiatic archers shot their arrows at close quarters. The spearmen hurled their javelins but it was not by missile weapons the fight was to be decided. Where the stroke of the ram failed, the ships were jammed together in the press, and men fought hand-to-hand -hand on forecastles and upper decks. Here it was that the Greeks, trained athletes, chosen men in the prime of life, protected by their armor and relying on the thrust of the long and heavy spear, had the advantage over the Asiatics. Only their own countrymen of the Ionian squadron could make any stand against them, and the Ionians had to face the spears of Sparta, in the hands of warriors all eager to avenge the slaughter of Thermopylae. Some of these Ionian Greeks, fighting under the Persian standard, won local success here and there in the melee. They captured or sank several of the Spartan Tyrems. One of the ships of Samothrace performed an exploit like that of Paul Jones, when, with his own ship sinking under the fleet of his crew, he boarded and captured the Serapis. A Greek Tyrum had rammed the Samothracian ship, tearing open her side, but as she went down her Persian and Ionian crew scrambled on board their assailant and drove the Greeks into the sea at spear point. It was noted that few of the Persian crews were swimmers. When their ships sank, they were drowned. The Greeks were able to save themselves in such a disaster. They threw away shield, helmet, and spear, and swam to another ship or the island shore. This fact would seem to indicate that with the exception of those who manned the Ionian and Phoenician squadrons, the crew of the Persian fleet were much less at home on the sea than the Greeks. And we know from the result of many battles, from Marathon to the victories of Alexander, that on land the Greek was a better fighting man than the Asiatic. The soldiers of the great king, inferior in fighting power even on the land, would therefore find themselves doubly handicapped by having to fight on the narrow platforms, floating on an unfamiliar element, and the sight of ships being sunk and their crews drowned would tend to produce panic among them. So the Greek wedge forced itself further and further into the mass of hostile ships, 
and in the narrow waters numbers could not tell. The Greeks were never at any given moment engaged with the superior force in actual hand-to-hand -hand conflict, and they had sufficient ships behind them to make good any local losses. Such a battle could only have one result. All order had been lost in the Persian fleet at an early stage of the fight. The rearward squadrons were pressed into the strait, and finding in the crowded waters that they were endangering each other without being able to take any effective part in the battle, they began to draw off, and the foremost ships, pressed back by the Greek attack, began to follow them towards the open water. The whole mingled mass of the battle was drifting eastward. The movement left the island of Vitalia unprotected by the Asiatic fleet, and Aristides, the Athenian, who had been watching the flight from the shores of Salamis, embarked a force of spearmen on some light vessels, ferried them across to Phalacia, and attacked its Persian garrison. They made a poor show of resistance, and to a man they were speared or flung over the rocks into the sea. The poet Aeschylus, who was fighting as a soldier on one of the Athenian triremes, told afterwards, not in pity, but rejoicing at the destruction of his country's enemies, how the cries of the massacred garrison of Vitalia were heard above the din of the battle, and increased the growing panic of the Persians. Even those who had fought best in the Asiatic Armada were now losing heart and taking to flight. Queen Artemisia, with her five galleys of Heliconarsus, had fought in the front line among the ships of the Ionian squadron. She was now working her way out of the melee, and, in the confusion, rammed and sank a Persian warship. Xerxes, watching the fight from his throne on the hillside, thought it was a Greek ship that the Amazon had destroyed, and exclaimed, this woman is playing the man while my men are acting like women. Two Persian ships in flight from the pursuing Greeks drove ashore at the base of Mount Agalios. Xerxes, in his anger at the disaster to his fleet, ordered the troops stationed on the beach to behead every officer and man of their crews, and the sentence was at once executed. The closing scene of the battle was, indeed, a time of unmitigated horrors, for while this massacre of the defeated crews was being carried out by the Persian guardsmen, the victorious Greeks were slain all the fugitive who fell into their hands. The admiral of the Persian fleet, Arabignes, brother of Xerxes, was among the dead. The pursuit was not continued far beyond the straits. The Greeks hesitated to venture into open waters, where numbers might tell against them if the Persians rallied, and they drew back to their morning anchorage. The remnant of the Persian fleet anchored off the coast near Phalerum, the port of Athens, or took refuge in a small harbor. They were rejoined by a detachment which had been sent to round the south side of Salamis to attack the western entrance of the straits, but which, for some reason, had never been engaged during the day. The victorious Greeks did not realize the full extent of their triumph. They expected to be attacked again the next morning, and hoped to repeat the maneuver which had been so far successful of engaging the enemy in the narrows with each flank protected by the shore, and no room for a superior force to form the actual line of fighting contact. But, though they did not yet realize the fact, they had won a decisive victory. Xerxes had been so impressed by the failure of his great armada to force the narrows of Salamis that he changed all his plans. In the night after the battle he held a council of war. It was decided that the attack should not be renewed, for there was no prospect of a second attempt giving better results. Artemisia was directed to convey Prince Artaxerxes, the heir to the empire, back to Asia. Xerxes himself would lead back to the bridge of the Hellespont the main body of his immense army, for to attempt to maintain it in Greece during the winter would have meant famine in its camps. 
the fleet was to sail at once for the northern archipelago and limit its operations to guarding the bridge of the hellespont and protecting the convoy for the army when the winter came it would have to be laid up but by that time it was hoped xerxes and the main body would be safe in asia mardonius the most trusted of his satraps was to occupy northern greece with a picked force of three hundred thousand men with which he was to attempt the conquest of the peloponnesus next year the persian fleet sailed from the roadstead of phalerum during that same night how far the crews were demoralized by the defeat of the previous day is shown by the fact that there was something of a panic as the white cliffs of sunium glimmered through the darkness in the moonlight and were mistaken for the sails of hostile greek warships menacing the line of retreat the persians stood far out to sea to avoid these imaginary enemies when the day broke, Themistocles and Eurybiades could hardly credit the report that all the ships of Asia had disappeared from their anchorage of the evening before. The Athenian admiral urged immediate pursuit. The Spartan general hesitated, and at last gave a reluctant consent. The fleet sailed as far as the island of Andros, but found no trace of the enemy. In vain Themistocles urged that it should go further, and if it failed to find the enemy's fleet, at least show itself in the harbors of Asia and try to rouse Ionia to revolt. Eurybiades declared that enough had been accomplished, and refused to risk a voyage across the archipelago in the late autumn. So the victorious fleet returned to Salamis, and thence the various contingents dispersed to be laid up for the winter in sheltered harbors and on level beaches, where a stockade could be erected and a guard left to protect the ships till the fine weather of next spring allowed them to be launched again. When Xerxes reached the Hellespont with his army, after having lost heavily by disease and famine in his weary march through Thessaly, Macedonia, and Thrace, he found that the long bridge with which he had linked together Europe and Asia had been swept away by a storm. But the remnant of his fleet was waiting to ferry across the strait what was left of his army, now diminished by many hundreds of thousands. The next year witnessed the destruction both of the army left under Mardonius in northern Greece and the remainder of the Persian fleet that had fought at Salamis. Pausanias, with a hundred thousand Greeks, routed the Persian army at Paltia. A fleet of one hundred Tyrams, under the admirals Leotychides and Xantippus, sailed across the archipelago in search of the Persian fleet. They found it in the waters of Samos, but the enemy retired towards the mainland without giving battle. The Asiatics were disheartened and divided. The Ionians were suspected of disaffection. The Phoenicians were anxious only to return in safety to their own country and resume their peaceful trading, and as soon as they were out of sight of the Greeks, they deserted the Persian fleet and sailed southward bound for Tyre and Sidon. What was left of the fleet anchored under the headland of Mycale. There was no sign of a Greek pursuit. Rumor reported that the Athenian and Spartan admirals were intent only on securing possession of the islands, and would not venture on any enterprise against the coast of Asia. Perhaps it was because he still feared to risk another engagement on the sea that the Persian admiral found a pretext for laying up his ships. He declared that they were so foul with weeds and barnacles that, as a preclude to any further operations, they must be beached and cleaned. They were therefore hauled ashore under the headland, and a stockade was erected round them, the fleet thus becoming a fortified camp guarded by its crews and then the dreaded Greek fleet appeared. Its hundred Tyrams could disembark some twenty thousand men, for arms were provided even for the rowers. A landing from low-sided ships of light draught was an easy matter. 
they were driven in a long line towards the shore. As they grounded, the warriors sprang into the water and waited to land. The rowers left their oars, grasped spear or sword, and followed them. The stockade was stormed, the ships inside it, dry with the heat of the Asiatic sun, and with seams oozing with tar, were set on fire and were soon burning fiercely. As the flames died down, a mass of charred timbers was all that was left of the great armada of Asia, and the victorious Greeks sailed homeward with the news that the full fruits of Salamis had been garnered. End of chapter 1